You're listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast. And now, here's your host, Mark Zeno. Joining us now on the Hazard Ground Podcast, we are very honored uh, to have him in here. He is Noah Galloway. You may have known him and seen him from Dancing with the Stars, but uh, his military career is what we know him for and the purposes of having him here on the podcast. And we welcome Noah. Thank you for being here, man. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me on, sir. All right. So, look, let's uh, let's tell your story because, again, I I think everybody kind of knows the the tail end of your story. But let's kind of go back and tell the beginning of it. And I always start the podcast and I ask a simple question. Hey, why did you decide that you were going to serve? <laughs> well, I mean, that's, that's a really good question. You know, I come from a family that is, you know, has served in the military, a long line of it. And growing up, as, as a teenager, I was one of those kids that had no real direction. And my mom was always telling me I should join the military. She thought I'd enjoy it and I'd be good at it. And I just didn't see it being anywhere that I fit in. So I avoided it and then somehow found myself in college because it's like, that's what you do. And I was in college when September 11th happened, and I watched that on the television with the rest of the world as it went down, and it angered me and upset me. And after watching for as long as I could, I went for a run, and on that run, I decided that I needed to join the military. There was no, it wasn't me making a career decision, it was just what I felt was necessary. I was 20 years old, I was physically fit, I needed to do my part for the country. And so I enlisted, and I went in the Army, and I told him I wanted to be airborne, I wanted to be infantry, because I have an uncle that was a paratrooper of the 173rd that always said, you want to be you know, up front, you want to be airborne, you want to be infantry. So that's what I did, and went through basic training, jump school, and then got my orders to serve at the 101st out of Fort Campbell, Kentucky. And, you know, it didn't take me long to realize that my mom was right. I found a place that I fit in. When you think back to that run that you were on where you made the decision, what were the emotions? Was it anger? Was it fear? Was it patriotism? Yeah, it was. I mean, there was, yes, there was patriotism, but there was also a lot of anger and, you know, love of country. So it was, it was one of those things where I was angry and upset. Uh, you know, I didn't know what was going to happen, what the retaliation was going to be, but I knew I needed to be part of it. And it was just, you know, it's just like, you can grow up and not be a fighter, but if someone harms, you know, a sibling or one of your parents or something, you're going to retaliate, and that's how I felt. Someone, you know, it had affected our country in a horrible way, and I wanted to make sure that I was part of it. Noah, you, you got injured on your second deployment, but I want to go to your first one because anybody who's been on multiple deployments can tell you your perspective changes after you get back from the first one. I mean, it, it, yeah. you're, you, you just view the world differently. And then when you're asked to go back again, some people have different reactions to it. I know mine. It was just like, okay, here we go again. You know, look, let's, let's ramp up mentally for this. But you get home from your first deployment. What was your mindset thinking, not only feeling about the military, but about your service and where you were as a person? You know, when I came back to the first deployment, <clears throat> I, the experiences I had during that invasion, and then once we settled in, and we <clears throat> once we had Baghdad, we the 101st pushed north to Mosul, and we took over the city there. And there was a lot of changes I went through um, emotionally with how I viewed things and working with the locals. You know, I always tell people, you always hear us veterans say it, we've all said it, you know, it's, it's not political, there's nothing going on, it's about, all about the, the men that are next to you. That that's what it's about, you know, what was going on outside of our world and our city 
that we were in within our platoon, our company, our battalion, that's all that mattered. And that's how I viewed it and the experiences I had. And when I came back, like I said, when I, once I got in the military, I found a place I was comfortable. When I was deployed, I was very comfortable. Uh, I was happy to be wearing uniform, but I was I was I enjoyed the camaraderie, um, the excitement, and then also working with the locals. So I couldn't wait to go back on the second appointment. On that first appointment, when they, you know, you remember when they first started letting guys go home on leave. Once mm-hmm. we got there, I turned it down. And I was married at the time, and I got a chance to use, I used my Iraqi satellite phone, and I called home to my wife, and I lied to her. I said that I was too far low on the totem pole, and I wasn't getting a chance to come home. But the reality was, I didn't want to leave. I felt so comfortable on that deployment that I didn't want to go home. And once I returned home, I couldn't wait to go back. You know what's funny is, is that deployments are weird in the sense that there's almost, in all the chaos there, there's almost a calm and a serenity because everything, we say it's Groundhog's Day, right? We do the same thing over and over again and nothing ever changes, but there's some peace in that because it's like when you get back to your regular civilian life, and I'm sure you experience this now, you deal with a lot of things that we don't deal with on deployments, whether it's kids, whether it's family, whether it's money and all those things. When you're in the sandbox, you get clear focus on one thing, and and it, it is almost less stressful than regular everyday life. It is. You know, and I've said that before, and people have looked at me like I'm crazy. I'm like, yeah, when you're over there, you just try not to die. And yeah. Like, well, that's a, that's a <laughs> if you just get word of that one it. thing, but, you're fine. Yeah. You know, I'll tell you, I, I did a lot of thinking about that and why we react that way. And the only thing I can compare it to is I talked to a couple of guys who have spent some long time in prison. And they said, you know, when you're in prison, we're talking about people who get out of prison, then get into trouble and end up back in prison. They make stupid mistakes. And I had a guy tell me, he said, look, when you're out, you know, in the general population, there are a lot of decisions you have to make, and it can be very stressful. When you're in prison, there are just a few decisions you have to make, and that's actually easier. And I thought, wow, I mean, I hate to compare prison to combat. I mean, it's completely different. One, you're serving the country. One, you've gotten into trouble. But in the mindset of just like you said, there are less things to worry about. Yeah, there are big things you worry about, but it's not as many. And there is some kind of calmness, calmness to that. All right, now let's fast forward to your second deployment, December 19th, 2005. That was the date uh, of your injury. Uh, you guys were hit with a roadside bomb. Let's just start with that day, that particular morning. You know, you get out of bed. Was it a normal day for you guys? Was anything out of the ordinary? Did you know you had a mission ahead of time? Well, so it was, it, it was one of those days where the area we were in, southwest of Baghdad, was our company size element was way too small for the area we were covering. Um, there, was, there were some poor decisions that were made uh, that have taken a lot of us that were on that deployment time. To some, of us, some of us have uh, gotten over uh, some of the anger towards some of the leadership, and some of us haven't. Um, but it just was... Horrible planning uh, on some of the leadership decisions that were made, and we had a day that two missions needed to be run by one platoon. And the fact that we had to split up and try to do what we had to do wasn't a good idea, and we did it anyway. We ran a couple of missions earlier that day, then we split up, and the group I was with, we finished first and headed back to an old potato factory we were living out of, and as we all know, you're in a combat zone, you get a chance to get some sleep, you do it. And I laid down. And just as I dozed off, my platoon leader, Lieutenant Edson, woke me up and said, hey, 
we're going to take these Humvees and go pick up the rest of the platoon. Uh, you don't need to go. We're just going to pick them up and come back. I just wanted you to know we were leaving. And I jumped up, and I said, no, sir, you go, I go. I'm going to go, and I'm going to drive the lead vehicle. So we loaded up just three in a vehicle and three Humvees, and we took off down the road that night. And up to that point, I, I remember. Uh, but then I don't remember anything else. Uh, my platoon leader said we we passed through one of the Iraqi checkpoints that, you know, we would just pass through, but you still had to slow down because of the barriers. And he said we took off. It was late at night. Our night vision goggles on. And we're heading down the road. And he said we just got to full speed. And he briefly noticed a bush that just caught his eye that seemed oddly out of place. As soon as he saw it, we got hit. And there was a trip wire that was stretched across the road that when my front tires hit it, and this roadside bomb went off, I mean, it hit my driver's side door and through this vehicle, this Humvee flying through the air and into a canal running adjacent to the road. And, of course, I was knocked unconscious. The water was up to my chest, and it took my arm off immediately. My jaw was shattered, and both my legs were severely injured. And it took them a while to get me up and out of the water because they said the embankment was so steep. And they rushed me to the potato factory. Even when we got out, they said that once they got me out of the water and they called for help, um, the platoon, our um, company commander said, we have nobody. There's nobody to come get you. And they were kind of just stuck with me there. And another convoy overheard this on the radio and come da- came down the road and picked me up and took me back to the potato factory so medics could work on me. And then they could fly me to a hospital, you know, to a camp outside of Baghdad, and from there to Germany, and Germany to Walter Reed. All right, there's there's a lot there. I, I, I want to go through some things and kind of set a little bit more it, because the area that you were in called Yusufia, I was in the same area in 05 to 06. I, I was at the at the Rodvanio Palace complex, so we were probably a couple of miles apart uh, from where you where, where your accident was, and, and that's a, a fairly calm area for the most part, uh, from what I recall. But, you know, as you mentioned, when you drive down the roads in Baghdad, it's not like streets in America. I mean, some of the areas, everything is littered with trash. Um, yeah. You know, there's there, there's just barren wasteland, and then there's some buildings. I mean, so no no street road looks the same. And when you drive down the road, was this the first time you were on the, in that area, or were you there before? No. You know, that's one thing that, as I look back, you know, you're always taught in the military, you know, don't go down the same road over and over right. again. But then, you know, we all do it. Mm-hmm. You become complacent. It's the quickest way to get where you need to get, and you use it. It was a road we used all the time. And that was, I was one thing I noticed was so much different from the first deployment. The first deployment, once we settled in, we were in a crowded city. And, it, you know, we were looking for targets and going after certain people. This deployment, we're in a, an area of just farmland, and they could easily set up you know, IEDs wherever they wanted because it wasn't going to harm the locals. And that is where it became so dangerous to hit those roadside bombs. Did you see the bomb itself? Did you see the flash? Did, what, what did you see? What did I don't you hear? I at all. At all? Um, Nothing? I don't okay. remember a single thing about it. And so everything that you had found out was secondhand information? Yes. Okay. And, and the only reason I ask that is because in some cases I think it's a blessing. You know, in certain cases I talk to vets and even myself, like I can still remember the crunch of the metal of the vehicle I was in when that bomb explodes. Like you, you that's a sound that stays with you. And, and you talk to vets and there are certain things that they recall about their incident, about whatever happened to them that stay with them forever. And, and 
do you kind of feel like, are you glad that you didn't have those things that, that kind of, you know, those memories that stay with you? You know, I, people tell me that all the time. I've had people that were there that have also said that, you know, it's, it's a good thing I don't. Um, but then there's a part of me that feels like I'm missing out on a big part of a, a, cha- a shift in my life that I lost that I don't remember. When I got pictures of them doing first aid on me in the medic station uh, there in Yusufia, somebody was worried that I would see him and it would bother me. No, when I saw him, it didn't bother me at all. I wanted to see that. I wanted to, because they said I woke up when they were working on me, and really? I don't remember it. And Every so often I'll get a glimpse of something that may seem similar, and I'll, I'll bring it up to somebody, you know, because I want to fill in that gap. I don't like having a part of my life that I don't remember. I mean, and that's understandable, obviously. I mean, it, it, I guess the, the other question I have about the whole thing is you, your, your platoon leader, your, your lieutenant came in and said he was going on a mission and you didn't have to go. You chose to go. Do you ever think about the other side of that? You know, what, what helped me through my depression, there was a, I kept reminding myself when I'd get upset about what happened to me. I was, the one thing that kept me motivated in that dark time was thinking, this was going to happen to somebody. And we've, you know, there's been times in our life where something could have happened to someone else close to us, and we thought, why them? Why not me? Well, I got that chance, and that kept me moving to think. I mean, I worked with some tough men that this, you know, wouldn't have been a problem, but why put them through that? I, I grew up with a father with one arm. You know, I felt like there were things that lined up in my life perfectly for me to be injured and to to push through it. And it's not saying those other guys couldn't have done it, but I'm glad it happened to me and not to them. So, no, it's one thing I do not regret. I do not regret uh, ever joining the military, ever reenlisted and going back for a second appointment, and I do not regret getting up that night and saying, no, I'm going and driving the lead vehicle. You know, it's interesting. Again, I'm somebody who was fortunate that in two deployments, I mean, I had my fair share of bad stuff happen to me, but I came out relatively unscathed, and I always tell people that war is just so unpredictable. I didn't do anything right versus you did anything wrong or vice versa. Then the reason that you're missing limbs and I'm not, I mean, it's just there's no accounting for the things that go on. Some of it is luck. Some of it's the grace of God. Some of it's training. But all of that put together, you know, there are plenty of good people who aren't with us anymore, and there are plenty of good people in your position who are missing limbs and their lives have changed because they did everything right, it's just that there's no way to account for it. Yeah, it is. It's, you know, it's, it's just pure random in how things happen and how you react to them. And, I, you know, you mentioned, you know, the, we've lost so many great men and women, and that's one thing that I've, I've sat with other uh, veterans that have been injured, whether it's physical or, you know, emotional and mental scars, you know, I remind them, I'm like, you know, we have to carry on because it's out of respect for those who, who can't. You know, and we have, to, we have to push on and be successful even with our injuries because we could not be here at all. All right, Noah, let's go to you, you were unconscious for five days. Uh, and at that point in time when you woke up, were you at Walter Reed already or were you in Germany? Where were you? Well, there was a brief moment I woke up Christmas Eve in Germany, and I was clueless to what was going on. Uh, in fact, there was, I talk about it in my book, there's, you know, I wake up and it's like I'd had this dream that someone, because we'd hit, you know, IEDs all the time. We tore up vehicles. I've blown through them. You know what I mean? But mm-hmm. it's just that one caught me. And I had this dream that someone told me that the explosions were so hot 
that it could fuse your bones together. You know, it was just a dream I had. And I wake up and my mouth is wired shut. And in my mind, I think my jaw has fused closed and I have my hand, I'm trying to pry it open. You know, I'm kind of out of it, so I'm weak and I'm just messing with my mouth, not sure what was going on. And I was, I, I was clueless. And then it's like, I guess I remember somebody telling me about a morphine button because I'm in pain, I'm hitting it, I'm hitting it, and then I'm hitting the nurse call button, and I was just stressed out. I didn't know where I was, what was going on. Um, there was a brief moment of remembering flying out of Germany and then going to sleep and waking up again. It was Christmas Day, and I was at Walter Reed. When you wake up and you look down at your legs and you look over, and you, do you try to use your arm? Did you try to use your legs? Were you not knowing what was going on? Initially, I didn't know, and I was in so much pain and confused. I don't recall ever trying to use my other arm or trying to move my leg or anything. Even my right leg, my good leg, was severely injured. I, I didn't know that things were missing. Um, I'm sure someone may have explained it to me, but it didn't sink in. I don't recall knowing anything about my injuries until my mother explained it to me. Um, when she told me that I lost my left arm, my left leg, and the injuries to my right leg, my right hand, and that my jaw was shattered, my mouth was wired shut. I mean, I don't remember any of it until she told me. And she just flat out just listed it like it was nothing, just told me this is what it is. Take me through some of the the process of the emotions there, because there's got to be a little bit, I would imagine, of trying to recollect, I mean, that must be the hardest part, as you said, trying to put the events together as to how you got where you are before you get to why did this happen to me. So kind of take me emotionally through that time, you know, from the time you woke up and it was explained to you to where you get to the point where you're like, oh, my God, this sucks. Yeah, well, so when I first was told, when once I realized what was going on with me physically, I knew that we had lost a lot of guys on that deployment. You know, there weren't injuries coming out. We were losing good men. And so when I was told what happened to me, my first thought was, because I don't remember being in the Humvee, I don't remember that, you know, who was in there with me, anything about it. I thought, if I'm this severely injured, who did we lose? And no one at the hospital knew that information. And Did that that bother you? Do what? Did that bother you? Because I imagine it would drive me crazy. I didn't know anything. And it, it stressed me out. And then... Uh, Jerry, Lieutenant Edson, uh, gave me a call. And he was injured, but not severely, but he went. He was in Germany when I was there, and then he went back to Fort Campbell and was put on rear D. And he called me, and they put the phone up to my ear, and I, he, we talked, and he told me everything that happened, and he told me that I was the only one that was, that was severely injured, and we didn't lose anybody. So then it was a relief. But then after that relief, the tables turned, and I had to focus on myself, and that terrified me. You know, I've told people before, and it sounds crazy, but you understand it. When you deploy, you accept death. You're either going to come home fine or, you know, you've given the ultimate sacrifice. There, there was no in-between. I didn't expect to be missing two limbs, and I didn't know what to do. And I, I told somebody today, it's almost like that character from Forrest Gump, Lieutenant Dan. You know, when he's injured, and he's like, no, I'm supposed to die. You know, I, I had those exact same feelings. Yeah, I mean, that, that's it's funny that what you mentioned about thinking of your other men and making sure they were okay before, you know, it, it sets in that there's something wrong with you. 
I, as you said, accepting death is and, and your own mortality is is not an easy thing. I mean, there I imagine it's the same for you. If you've gone out on more than one mission before, you eventually start to get the feeling that you know eventually you're gonna you're gonna crap out. You're gonna pay the piper because there's only so many times you can drive through the area in Baghdad, anywhere in Iraq, without something bad going on. And and there were mornings I can recall waking up with this just uneasy feeling that today was a day and today was the day it was going to happen. There were other days you felt invincible. Um, yeah. and, and we talked about that randomness of, of how things happen. When you when you were sitting there and you started to get scared, did you think back then, I wish I hadn't have chosen that mission? No, that never came across my mind. Um, I, I was just terrified of what I, I, it was my future that terrified me. And I, I have, you know, I think that that happens with a lot of people, whether you're a veteran or civilian, when you have a view of the future, you know, my, I was going to retire in the military. I saw, I found a career that I was going to do. You know, I put in my packet, uh, to go to selection. Mm-hmm. You know, I, they even came on that deployment to get me, to send me back to the States to go to selection. And I said, I'm not leaving this deployment for a school. I'll do that after. I had, I had a clear view of what I wanted to do with my career in the military, and it was taken away, and that terrified me. I didn't, you know, I loved being in. I loved being physical, and I felt like the military and being physical were taken away from me what felt like overnight. I just wake up one day, and it was all gone. And that, I mean, I didn't know how to cope with that. In my book, I talk about, I open up about crying like a child. Uh, I didn't know what to do. My mom being there, it's like I just, I held her like I was a baby. I didn't know what was going on or what I was going to do. That's what scared me. I mean, obviously, you went through a, a bout with depression, as, you, as you've talked about. And I, I, we'll get to the book at the end. I just, I'll just i give you a chance to kind of tell everybody where they can get it if they don't know about it already. But you did you feel yourself sliding into depression? Did you feel like you were you were falling and you couldn't do anything to stop it? I, ne- I never saw it coming. It happened... You know, once I came out of it, I looked back and saw how bad I was. I didn't see it coming. Um, I, I'm i the kind of person that I like to, to research things, and I've done my homework on what happened, you know, how people react to, you know, whether you're a veteran or just someone who lost a limb, the, you know, the emotions you would go through. And because I was researching, I thought, okay, I won't go through any of this. You're, I felt like, you know, I saw that a lot of people end up taking too much pain medicine. You know, it's not the fault of a hospital or anything they're asking for. They say they're in pain. So I quit all my medication and thought I was going to beat this on my own. I didn't spend time with any other. I regret this tremendously. At Walter Reed, I didn't spend time with the other veterans. I wanted to do everything on my own. I didn't want any help. I was stubborn. And once I got home, I started self-medicating with alcohol and didn't see that coming. And when, But when I was drinking, I was going out, and I just thought I was having a good time. And I was setting myself up for failure constantly. And so I did not see myself falling into that depression. I didn't know why I was so upset, why I was so angry. I wasn't controlling my emotions well. So instead of once I got through all the crying at Walter Reed, I didn't want to do that anymore. So instead of being, letting myself be upset and being emotional, I became angry. And so it came out as anger. And once I gained control of that, I mean, not to jump ahead too far, but that's when my anger calm down once I realized, okay, it's okay to be upset if something's bothering you. Well, I, I, you did get ahead. I want to get to what you talked about because there's so much there, but let's go back real quick one second. Your LT called you while you are in the hospital and spoke with you. A lot of people don't realize that, you know, because the Army and the business that it is keeps moving forward, 
None of the other guys who were with you got hurt, you know, majorly during that time. They continued their careers. Did any of them ever reach back out to you? And if not, did that bother you? No. Everyone, like, you know, they were still deployed, so it it was difficult. We weren't living on a camp. There was no contact, you know what I mean? There was no way for anybody to reach out to me. Lieutenant Edson was able to because he was back at Fort Campbell. So the rest of the guys didn't. Um, Then I tied in with the, you know, the FRG and made sure, because then a couple of guys did get injured after me, and they were they were brought to Walter Reed. And I told one of the FRG leaders, I was like, if anybody gets injured, if anything happens, you let me know. So then, you know, like we had one of the mortarmen that were in our uh, company uh, got injured, and he can't, and I was there. You know, I made sure I was there. Uh, a good friend of mine, Ethan, uh, was, you know, he got injured severely and was in a coma. I was there with them. I got. To, I was there with this family. Um, I made sure that whatever I could do, I was there helping. And then once everybody returned back to Fort Campbell, I was there when they came home. Uh, we all stay in contact. We all talk. Um, we, you know, it's very sporadic now because you know it's been almost 11 years. Right. Uh, but we do, and I'll get a random call from one of the guys I served with, and we would just talk. I know for the first couple of years, though, it bothered them more than it bothered me. Um, I was There's survivor's guilt. Them. Do what? There's survivor's guilt. Yes. And so that they would call me after they'd been drinking all night, and they were upset, and they'd call, and they were upset and bothered by what happened to me. And I would talk them down, that everything was good. And I feel like me telling them that wasn't sinking in, and because I was lying to them. I was, <laughs> and I was lying to myself. I was still depressed and upset. Uh, but I was telling them that I was fine. And it wasn't until I started to be successful and to push beyond my injuries that now I get these random phone calls from my buddies that I served with, and they're always happy and excited. No one's upset anymore. And, and just a little anecdote for, for those listening. The, the, the camaraderie that you spoke about earlier is so deep. There are guys that I ha- served with on deployment. I haven't talked to them in probably maybe five or six years. If I got a random phone call or random text from any of those guys, we would pick up like we'd never stop talking, like we were still on deployment, and we would have the same conversations and the same laughs. That's what kind of going this whole experience going through together does for you. Yeah, and you know, and that's one thing that I miss so much about the military. And it is. It's when, when you go through something as dramatic as combat, the, the, the friendship that, that forms from that, yeah, it doesn't go away. And they, you can get on the phone with them, see them anywhere, and it's like it hasn't been five or six or seven years. All right, let's go back to the the, the dark time you mentioned before. Uh, you get back, you're out of the hospital, you go back home, you're trying to self-medicate, you're just trying to make the feelings you're feeling go away because I can imagine that after a while feeling that same thing every day has got to just be burdensome to you. What was the lowest point for you in that whole experience? You know, I... I don't know. There were so many. Um, there was, I think, one of the things that happened when I realized how bad off I was, I, it was Christmas Eve. I don't remember what year it was. The kids were little. I have three kids. And I told their mom, I said, I'm going to go out with some friends. I'll, you put the kids to bed. I'll come back. We'll set up Christmas so Christmas morning everything will be ready. And I went out drinking and got home, stumbled up to the porch, threw up, and was down on my knees 
and all I could think was, don't ruin Christmas for the kids. I got in the house, put out Christmas, didn't even wake up their mom, laid on the couch and passed out, and that's where I was when I got up Christmas morning. And that upset me so much, just thinking back on it. I'm glad the kids were young uh, because that's not the image I want them to have as a memory for them. And that was one of the things that really bothered me. Like, who have I become? What am I doing? And then there was, I, I ended up spending 10 days in the county jail. And that was another wake-up call. And that's the thing is, like, I've had people say, what was that one turning moment that was not one? I was constantly causing mistakes in my own life and falling flat on my face and trying to get up again and improve. There was one constant in my life, and that was my three children wanting to be better for them. So every time I screwed up, and it was several times, they were my motivation to get better. And eventually, I was able to come out of that. Do your kids ask you questions about what happened? You know, they I've talked with them about it. They know that we're out somewhere, and, the, and, and another kid says, you know, your dad's missing an arm and a leg. You're like, yeah, he was a soldier. He got injured, but it's not that big a deal. They move on. Uh, you know, kids are so resilient like that. It's crazy. So it's like injuries happened and they moved past it. Kids are so resilient like that. You know, just they, they they don't know any better that it's not normal, you know? Yeah. (laughs) That's one of the pure things and great things about them. All right. So you kind of go through these series of low moments. Um, was there a conversation you had with anybody? Was, was there a, what was the decision point for you to say, look, I got to change. I got to do something different. You know, it was, I think the most terrifying thought I had was one day I walked into the living room and all three kids were sitting on the couch, two boys and a little girl. The youngest was the girl. And when I realized I was showing my boys what a man is and that's what they were going to grow up to be and showing my girl how a man was supposed to be and that's what she was going to look for one day, knowing I was setting that, that example for them, that was the, I had the conversation with myself, like, no. This is, you're not going to do this to the kids. The 10 days I spent in the county jail, I met people who were heading there or were waiting to go to the penitentiary and have been there before. And they would tell me about their fathers who'd been in and out of prison or the fact that they had kids. And there was another time that I thought, oh, no, this is not what I want for my kids. I don't want to set them up for something like that. And so it was my kids that was a constant reminder. I mentioned before, and I, I say it all the time, even to this day, my kids are a reminder every day of the decisions I make, and they were the, the one constant in my life that helped get me out of that depression. Do you feel comfortable talking about why you're in jail for 10 days? Oh, yeah, I'm, yes, I'm very comfortable talking about it. You know, I was drinking all the time, and I would get, you know, it's, I hate to admit it, this is, you know, I'm lucky that, one, I didn't get hurt, but more importantly, I never harmed anyone else, but I was driving under the influence. And I would get pulled over. And, you know, I had my Purple Heart tag. I visibly was missing my arm and my leg. And more than once, police officers would look at me and say, how far is your home? And I would always be close. And they'd say, go straight home. They, they didn't know how to react to it. I'm sure that at times they thought if it happened to them, they'd probably be way worse than just drinking. And then one night I got pulled over and uh, the police officer took me in. And I got a DUI, and then I went to court, and the uh, judge was going to help me out on this. And then 
I wasn't following everything he needed me to do. And one of my court dates, he threw me in jail for 10 days for contempt of court. And that 10 days opened my eyes. I needed that. Years later, the police officer that pulled me over, we ran across each other. After I was back out in the shade doing fitness, we ran into each other in a gym. And he was, he was embarrassed that he was the one that uh, gave me the DUI. I was the, the, he thought he was the reason I spent 10 days in the county. And I shook his hand and I thanked him. I said, no, you did me the biggest favor anyone could have ever done. You made me face my problems. And I, was, and I needed that because I was heading down a road that I didn't need to be on. I mean, another, I mean, yes, I didn't harm anyone those times I drove under the influence. But all it takes is one time, and who's to say the next night wasn't going to be it? And if I would have harmed someone else, I don't think I could have lived with that. So you, you make this decision to change your life. And look, take it for what it's worth. You're in great physical shape. You're on magazine covers. You, you, you're, you are a, a specimen to behold from a physical standpoint. But I'm sure it, at your lowest point, you weren't in the shape that you were in now. How did no. you how, – how did you – get back in shape, and then, again, what, what were the challenges being a double amputee? Well, you know, I knew I was big into fitness. I got into fitness when I was about 12 years old, and fitness was something I loved. You know, once I became an infantry soldier, it would just fit perfectly with who I was as a person. And so once I, I was going through these struggles and I wanted to improve, one of the things that I remembered was how good I felt when I was in shape, when I was healthy. So I was like, okay, that's going to be my first step. So I changed the way I was eating first and cut, you know, and, and was like, I can't be drinking. That's not going to help me. So I changed my eating habits, started feeling better, joined a 24-hour gym because I was embarrassed to go in the gym. And I had to figure out how to work out because there is no books, magazines, nothing online that could show me, you know, 10 years ago, more, you know, I mean, five years ago, how I was going to get into shape, missing arm and leg. So I went into this gym, and I was just trying to figure it out, which kind of excited me. It was like I was 12 years old again, sneaking into, you know, the fitness area at my local community center, um, underage, to try to, to work out. And I figured out how to work out my right side. I, I figured out I could use an ankle strap to work the left side of my body with a cable machine. And I started pushing myself. And as I stuck with it, as the days turned into weeks, weeks to months, I didn't have to go in the middle of the night anymore. I could go in the middle of the day, and I felt good about myself. Everything started to change. I had more energy to play with my kids. I felt better, and that started to pull me out of that depression. All right, so when you're going through all this and and, and you come back out, and do you have a moment where you see, oh, my God, I'm above the clouds, the air is clear, and this is where I want to be in life going forward? Yes. And that was when I was able to look back and see how deep and dark a depression I was in. You know, whenever, like you said it, and others have said, you know, when did you realize you were in it? I didn't realize I was in it until I was out of it. And I was able to look back and think, wow, I was in a horrible state of mind, a horrible place that I am so glad I came out of. And I was terrified of going back. Um, I, I, I got into fitness and obstacle races and marathons and pushing myself as hard as I could to the point that it was a little out of control um, because I was so scared of ever going back in that depression. So it's like I came out of it, but then was still running and scared. And it wasn't until a couple of years later that I realized I could calm down. I told somebody the other day that it was like 
you know, imagine you're, you're in a nightmare where someone's chasing you through the woods with a knife, you know, uh, Jason or Freddy Krueger, and you come out of the woods, but you keep running uh, because you're scared. It isn't until you realize, oh, I'm safe, I can calm down. That was the moment I had a couple years after that that I was able to relax and then focus more not just on the fitness, but really concentrate on the kids and what I'm doing with my life and what my new future is going to be. You've gotten into so many things that probably you never expected to uh, as you know your life went on. When you look back at the whole thing, is there anything you do differently? And, and would you trade if you could? I know it's a really weird hypothetical question, but you know, would you trade anything to kind of have the life you had before your injury? You know, I, I, I love being in the military. I miss that all the time. Uh, I loved having all my limbs. I mean, let me be honest. <laughs> That's okay to <laughs> if say. I could, if I could wake up tomorrow and they'd be back, I would love it. Okay. Um, but I tell people all the time, I'm like, you know, I, I've joked and said I think I make missing an arm and a leg look easy. And sometimes I think that makes it uh, harder for people to understand that, you know what, it is a struggle every day. I never forget that I'm missing my arm and my leg. Um, but I tell people all the time, do not feel sorry for me because I have an appreciation for life and a relationship with my children that I do not think I would have if I hadn't have been injured and if I hadn't have gone through that depression and made those mistakes in my life. Where I am today, it took me a long time to realize that, but where I am today, almost 11 years later, no, I would not change a single thing. It's truly the journey, not the destination. Um, it is. How did the whole Dancing with the Stars thing come about, and, and what was the – were you motivated to do it? Were you excited to do it? I mean, <laughs> well, you're, 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 a, you're a tough guy, and all of a sudden, hey, you want to come on a dancing show? <laughs> I'll tell you. When, so it was after I made the cover of Men's Health, and that's the world's largest men's magazine. I was the first veteran and amputee to ever grace the cover. They titled me their first ultimate guy. Mm -hmm. And that I ended up going on Ellen DeGeneres' show after that. And I had someone tell me, you go on Ellen and you're set. I didn't know what that meant. But I enjoyed <laughs> the interview. It was great. And then the phone started ringing. Survivor called me. They wanted me to be on their show. I thought, man, that'd be awesome. But we had one phone call. And they said, it's X amount of weeks. No contact back home. Even if you get voted off, you stay with the crew. No contact back home. And I said, thanks, but no thanks. I have three kids here in Alabama. There's no fame or fortune that's more important to them. I cannot be gone that long. So I turned it down. Another show called. I turned it down. And then I thought that was it. I mean, I was my kids were more important. That was the life I'd chosen, and I wasn't worried about it. I did not think that a dancing show was going to call me. <laughs> and when they called, they had to convince me. You know, they said, you know, if you do the show, we'll put you in a house in L.A. for the duration of the time of your show. And I had a great excuse. I said, thanks, but no thanks. I have three kids here in Alabama. I can't do it. And without hesitation, they said, not a problem. Your dance partner will come to Birmingham. You'll rehearse there every week and fly back and forth for the live show. And I thought, crap. Wow. I guess I got to do it. And I didn't think I'd last very long on the show. I was not excited about doing it. Um, but we... We started doing it. I took it serious because I didn't want to embarrass myself in front of 15 million people live every Monday night. So I did the best I could. And it wasn't until week five that was most memorable year, and I danced to Toby Keith's American Soldier. Uh -huh. And I did a one-arm lift that no one had ever done on the show before. At the end of the dance, I got a standing ovation from all the judges and everyone in the studio audience. It felt incredible. Um, but it was the next morning, the reaction I got 
from veterans, from other people with disabilities. All these people that were reaching out to me, telling me that I was inspiring them, and it touched me. You know, I, I told Shauna Burgess, my dance partner, I said, look, I don't know how long we're going to be on this show, but this has become bigger than us. we got to push it as hard as we can every week. I was not a good dancer. I'm not a good dancer. I've not danced <laughs> since. I don't watch my dances now. But it did something for other people. And I had people on the show tell me that I was getting all the votes. I had, there was a group of people, veterans were watching that show, and they know veterans don't watch Dancing with the Stars. Yeah. You know, there, were, there was people watching that had never watched, a demographic that was new to the show. And the show told me constantly that I was bringing them in to watch. And it, it motivated me. When I've had people say to me, you know, I did all 10 weeks, came in third. And I've had people that are diehard fans of the show or they're just inspired, and they said, you know, you should have won. I've always said, no, Rumor Willis came in first, and she deserved it. Riker came in second, and he deserved that. The fact that I came in third, that I did every dance for 10 weeks, the fact that, I mean, forget that I missed an arm or leg, the fact I can't even dance, <laughs> and I came in third on a dancing competition, I am more than happy with that. Uh, I, I, I made that because people voted for me because they, they were inspired and moved by what I did. And I pushed as hard as I could because of those people, and that was an incredible feeling to have that kind of support. What was a scarier proposition for you, dancing in front of 15 million people or driving through the streets of Baghdad? Oh, I would drive down the streets of Baghdad <laughs> in a heartbeat before I'd dance again. <laughs> All right. Um, let me ask you this much. You talked about the people who reached out to you and inspired you. One of the goals of this podcast is just to is to reach out to vets and, and talk with them and – you know, hopefully, we obviously everybody knows about the problems that vets are having with suicide and things of that nature. And if any way we can we can encourage a vet to come forward and tell their story, that's what you know the goal of this whole thing is. But when you talk to vets now, what do you tell them? What do you say? What's your message? So you know, I mentioned earlier in my depression that what terrified me was not knowing what my future was, and I think that happens with especially a lot of veterans. You go into the military. Uh, you know, your first enlistment, you know, once you go in, you have to, you're hoping that this is a career. You know, you sign that contract for three, four, five years, but you're hoping to re-enlist. And then something happens, you, you do get out or you get injured and you're, and you're get medically retired, whatever it is, suddenly you don't know what your future is, and that's terrifying. And I think that that's when people kind of start sinking to that depression, not knowing what their future is. And what we tend to do is once you've done something as impressive as served in combat, you know, serving your country at that level, you hang on to it. And I tell veterans all the time, be proud of what you've done, but that was a chapter in your life. Do not live for it. Start another chapter. I'm three or four chapters past my deployment. My story is not over. You know, another chapter is coming up after this one. I love to point out to people, I call it the Al Bundy effect. Remember Modern Family, not Modern Family. Um, married with Children. Married with Children. Mm-hmm. Al Bundy in high school scored four touchdowns mm-hmm. in a single football game. Polk High School, that's, baby. That's all he talked about. And then here he is. He's a, he's a man that's miserable at home. He's a shoe salesman. He's not happy. But all he's proud of is that those four touchdowns in a football game. I tell guys all the time, do not be Al Bundy. Move past that. Start your next chapter. You were impressive when you were in. Now be impressive while you're out. And I think that's what guys need to remember. You know, it is, it is a small percentage of people who serve in the military, you know, that are willing to, live, to risk life and limb for this country. Do not forget how impressive you are. Now be impressive 
as a civilian. Find your next, your next goal, your next objective, and go after your target. And I think that that's what guys need to remember. It took me a while to realize it. But once I realized, okay, be proud of where I've come from, but now let's start another chapter. It's a beautiful message and certainly a powerful one. Uh, I want to tell people about your book. It's called Living With No Excuses, The Remarkable Rebirth of an American Soldier. I mean, I, I assume it's available at all normal, you know, Barnes & Noble, Amazon, all the other places you can get yeah. it. Was that a labor of love? What was the reason you wanted to write the book? Oh, the book was hard to do. Um, when I went through my depression, I didn't open up and share it and get help for a long time because I thought I was alone. I didn't think anyone else was experiencing what I was experiencing. So when I decided to do the book, I mean, it talks about Dancing with the Stars. It talks about me going to the military. It talks about deployments. But the heart of the book, the reason I did it was because on the chapters that I talk about my depression, I was brutally honest, and it was hard to talk about, hard to do. But I wanted, I, I kept reminding myself that someone's going to read this that is going through the same thing. And if it helps them see that you can get through it, that there is a light at the end of the tunnel, then it's worth it. And even when the book was printed, before it hit the shelves, I remember going through it and reading some of it and being scared, thinking, I'm going to share something very honest and open with the reader, and I don't know how they're going to react to this. And I had to remind myself again, there's a reason for this. I'm not doing this book to make money. I'm doing it hoping that someone will be moved by it and will get help. And I wanted to be open and honest, and that's what I did, and that's why I did the book. Well, honestly, again, it's been a pleasure just uh, sitting here and chatting with you. I'm sure the book goes into much greater detail than we've gone here. Uh, also, check out the website, noahgalloway.com. Uh, again, Noah, I just, uh, I'm just i blown away by what you've been able to accomplish. Uh, I, I certainly am proud to, uh, to call you a fellow brother and somebody who has put on a uniform along with me. And I, I just I, I hope people continue to learn from your story. I hope vets continue to learn from your story. And I, keep, I hope you keep going out there and telling the story because I think it's great and, and people need to hear it. Thank you, sir. Thank you so much for having me on. You've been listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast, hosted by Mark Zeno and produced by Matt Pascarella. If you have an interesting story to tell and you'd like to be on the show, send us an email at hazardgroundpodcast at gmail.com. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.